<laughs> Let's hear from Scripture. So Chris is going to come up, read some of my favorite words uh, from the entire Bible. This is from Revelation 21 and 22. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them, and they will be his peoples. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, crying, or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, All is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will freely give water from the life-giving spring. Then the angel showed me the river of the life-giving water, shining like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the city's main street. On each side of the river is the tree of life, which produces 12 crops of fruit, bearing its fruit each month. The tree's leaves are for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They won't need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will rule forever and always. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Chris. All right, so we move into the final three weeks of our Big Enough story, where we have been walking for the last year through the five acts of the story of scripture beginning with act one creation and now we find ourselves in the final part of act five where uh, we spent some time earlier around the season of pentecost looking at how the church responds to the reality of easter and what does it mean that that god is alive again that death has been defeated and then now we begin glimpsing ahead to the final pages of scripture the book of revelation and seeing uh, a glimpse of what god's intention is for all things. And so uh, as we do that, I want to uh, today just offer some thoughts that the end of the story heals the beginning of the story. And, uh, and it's something that I find great hope in. And so we're going to do this through the, the lens of the book of Revelation. It's been a few weeks since we've been here. If you weren't with us a few weeks ago, or maybe you were, but, but we've forgotten, I want to just offer a few thoughts on the book of Revelation to begin, to frame our conversation, and to, to anchor us. And so, first of all, Revelation is this wildly misunderstood and misinterpreted book. Right? And so whenever we turn to it, uh, I don't know about you, sometimes it's like the, the, the heartbeat just begins to race, like where is this going, right? I want to say that Revelation is not a code for us to crack. It is a collage of images of God's intention for the end of all things. Uh, Sonny, I feel like I'm echoing a little bit. If you can, I don't know if I am. Is, are y'all hearing that? Is that just me? Uh, I'm feeling a little hot, if you can turn me down. Thank you. Um, okay, so, oh, much better. Yeah, y'all hear me good? Okay, that's better. Thank you, Sonny. Okay, uh, so this is not a code to crack. This is a collage for us to glimpse at and uh, to see somewhat uh, through the veil 
of what is God doing to restore all things, to reconcile all things, to renew all things. And so Revelation is intended not primarily to spark our information about God's purposes, but to spark our imagination about God's purposes, to help us get a sense of what does it mean for God to move creation, to move the story toward God's intended ends. And so Revelation is not so much about the end of the world, it is about God's desired ends for the world how things will be when God gets God's way, all the way. And so we're talking here about the telos of the story, which means end in Greek, but it's not just like the, the finish line, it's, it's, the, it's the intention. It's the target that God is aiming his story toward. It is the treasure that is stored up in heaven that will one day wed this earth. That is the telos, the end of our story, and it's where Act 5 is moving us toward. And so if the end of the story is going to heal the beginning of the story, then to understand where God is moving our story, we have to return to Act 1. Uh, we are best going to understand Act 5 as we return to Act 1. And so we go all the way back, and some of this will be remedial for those of you who were here a year ago, but it's good to be reminded of where our story began. Genesis 1 and 2. There is an empty void, an inky abyss, and out of nothing, God creates what he loves, and he loves what he creates. There is a cosmos, and in that cosmos, he places a garden. And in that garden, there is a river, and a tree of life, and fruit that heals. And out of nothing, God creates this. He says these words, let there be light. Words shape worlds, and they spark new life. And God begins with those words, and God is always speaking words that form new life. They form new realities in our world. God says, let there be. And right from the start, there's like this cadence in Scripture. You know, Genesis 1 is a poem, and it's written with meter and with cadence and with tempo. And so you see that. You can actually pick it up as you read it aloud. And God said, let there be, and there was, and there was evening, and there was morning, and it was good. And uh, scholars have actually noticed a time signature in the opening words of scripture. It is like creation right from the start. God sets the pace of it. There is this one, two, three, one, two, three, and then there's a double emphasis on the seventh day, seven, 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 seven. There's 24 hours, seven days, a 28-day lunar march, 12 times a year, four seasons per lap. There are tides that crash and hearts that beat and lungs that breathe, and all of it is good and holy and blessed, and God is with God's creation. And that's where the story begins. And God gives ordinary people like Adam and Eve and you and me roles to play in his story. He calls us kings and priests, kings who have leadership, stewardship, responsibility, dignity, dominion, and also priests who honor God by mirroring God to creation, and then creation's praises back to God. And that is the role that we are to play, and God is with his good and growing world, and there is no somewhere else when the story begins. Everything's right here. There is no somewhere else to go. But then, of course, there is the crash of Genesis 3. We all know the crash well, right? We displace God's place, we disorder God's order, and we fracture creation, but even more, we fracture the relationship we have with the creator. 
And essentially what has happened is that if the, the telos of, of God's story is, is this arrow that is moving toward the target of God's intention, essentially what happens in Genesis 3 is that each of us grabs the arrow, grabs the story, and moves it off course. We bend it off of the course of where God would have the story go if, if it was entirely up to God. And this is what we call sin. Sin literally derives from an archery term that means to miss the mark, to move something off the target, right? And so that's what happens. There is this great fracture in Genesis 3. And you've heard me say this over and over again over the last year, that then in that moment, the great enemies of God's story, the two great enemies, sin and death, enter into the story. And their rupture and the rubble from the fall is real, but I want us to remember that sin and death is not where our story begins, and it is not where our story ends. It does not get the first words, and it will not get the final words of God's story. Last time we were here, we looked at two central images from the book of Revelation. We looked at the idea that the lamb is slain from the foundation of the world before there was even a sin and death problem. The lamb's already slain. Well, why? Because God is cruciform by nature. God lays his life down by very nature, by essence. This is who our God is. But then also, this, these words from Revelation 5, 6, that in between the throne, John sees this vision. It's part of the collage that he's seeing. He sees a lamb standing as if it had been slain. And for my money, this might be the central image of the entire scriptures because we need a lamb who is standing as if slain. We need to have a lamb who is slaughtered but still standing because that alone defeats the two great enemies. That picture alone defeats the two great enemies. We celebrate Good Friday. The lamb slain, Jesus the Christ crucified on the cross, because on the cross all of creation's sin was sinned into the Lamb Jesus, and he was slain, but he refused to pass the, slain, the slaying along. He refused to pass the pain along. All that went wrong, all that was fracturing the world, the ever-increasing violence, the ever-increasing selfishness, these things that are fracturing the world into smaller and smaller shards, Jesus takes all of it on the cross and says, it stops here. I will not pass it on. And thereby he breaks that which seemed unbreakable, thereby he ends that which seemed unending, that ever-increasing cycle of sin. Jesus says no more, and he defeats the first enemy of our story. Sin has been defeated. And we often make that defeat of sin the entire Christian story. It's a critical part of the Christian story, but it's not the whole story. There is still another enemy to be defeated. It's the enemy of death. Right? And so not only do we need the lamb to be slain, we need the lamb to stand back up again. Because if the lamb does not stand back up again, then the lamb is still dead, and then death gets the final word of the story. But God's not content to allow death to get the final word of the story. And so Jesus, on Easter, he rises from the dead. And I want to pause here for a few minutes and just follow a rabbit trail which has to do with making sense of death in the Christian story. I wanna ask the, the question, what happens when we die? What does the Christian story have to say about that? And it feels to me like the conventional wisdom has essentially become that when we die as Christians, then we float away to heaven, right? To this other place. And we hang out on the clouds with God, or we play our harps, or whatever it is that, that we do in that image. Um, 
And uh, not only is it, uh, I, it feels a little boring to me, honestly. Like, what, what am I, what am I going to do playing that harp all day forever and ever and ever and ever? Um, we have these disembodied souls, and they've gone off to this other place. I want to say that that is not the story of Christian hope. Christian hope is wider than that. It's wilder than that. It's harder to believe than that. It's better than that. Because what we say happens next to Jesus is not that he is crucified on Good Friday and then that his soul floats away to another place. What we say is that Jesus got back up out of the grave and he walked the earth anew with some sort of transformed physical body, a, a restoration, a resurrection kind of life. The lamb gets back up again as the firstborn of the dead. And often we're willing to concede, okay, well, that happened to Jesus. We believe that happened to Jesus. But we would blush at the idea that that same kind of miraculous resurrection could happen to us, right? And so what we do, that feels too, too out there, too, too wild, too maybe good to believe that there is actually a, a future hope that goes on and on right here in this place and in this story. And so we create a lesser story. Whenever we don't believe God, we create lesser stories, and the lesser story I think we often have created is that Jesus rose, but the best I can hope for is not that I will rise, but that I will float away to some other place. But in doing so, we have actually settled for the somewhere else that God refused to settle for. When he said, I'm going to restore this creation, I'm not going to give up on this creation. I'm going to come over and over. I am the one who has come and who is coming and who is to come because I'm going to come to this creation until it is reconciled to God, until the world is healed, until the arrow that has been bent off course is bent back on course and, and brought home to the telos that I designed it for. And so a lesser story, a sin-centric story, a Genesis 3 story says that healing can only come when we get out of this place because this place is too far gone. It's too broken. Not even God can fix what happened in Genesis 3. We would never say this, right? But sometimes we implicitly say this. And so we got to punch our ticket to another kind of place, somewhere else that we can go when we die. But if that's the story, then N.T. Wright points out that death has not been defeated, it's merely been described, right? Because I die, and then through the vehicle of death, I go to another place, and that other place is what we call heaven. And uh, in that case, death becomes a needed vehicle. It might still be scary, but I actually need death to get where God wants me to go, right? It becomes a friend to me in that sense, even though it's a scary friend. But scripture doesn't call death a friend, it calls it the last enemy to be defeated. And so we need a victory over death, not just to use the vehicle of death to get somewhere else. And so Christian hope grabs on tight to the belief that what God did for his child Jesus at Easter, God will one day do for all of his children. That we are going to get caught up in the same sort of resurrection that Jesus got caught up in. That just as the Lamb got up and walked this very earth with a physical body in a new sort of way, a mysterious sort of way, that we will too. That we will rise to new life. That God has not abandoned this creation project. He's going to restore this creation project. And he's going to continue to charge us to live as kings and priests in dominion and honor over it. 
And so if you are tracking with what I'm saying, my heart is to say uh, certainly not that heaven is not real. It is to say that heaven is more real than we've imagined and that the heavens are going to invade this place. We don't need to go some other place. God's going to bring everything that is needed right here. And so let's look at 1 Corinthians. The early church begins to wrestle with this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the message that is preached says that Christ has been raised from the dead, then how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised either. In other words, if we're not willing to concede the resurrection for us, then we can't say that it happened to Jesus either. It's a package deal. If we have hope in Christ only in this life, then we deserve to be pitied more than anyone else. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first crop of the harvest of those who have died. And so Paul is saying that Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection, the first crop, and the point of having first fruits is simply that it indicates a larger, later, full harvest that will come. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, and the point of having a firstborn is that there will be more children to come. And so what happened to Jesus is happening to all of God. God's children, we in Christ are caught up in his resurrection life and will be restored to new life. And not just our souls, but our physical bodies in some mysterious way. And not just to go to heaven, but for heaven to come to us. And not just to float on the clouds, but to reign as kings and priests again over a now curseless creation, over a restored cosmos. God makes all things new again. And so it's not surprising then that when we start to see that image of the collage of the end of the story, what we pick up is all the stuff we saw in the very beginning. Revelation 21 and 22 mimics, it echoes Genesis 1 and 2. It's, it's just, you know, 2-1 and 2-2 right now. And so we shouldn't be surprised that out of nowhere God creates what he loves and he loves what he creates. He recreates it this time. A new creation. A new heavens and earth. And on that earth there is a city. And in that city there are gardens. Because if you rightly steward a garden, if you steward it the way it was intended... If it's going to grow the way that it's meant to grow, then you're going to end up not just with a garden, but with gardens and gardens and gardens, and soon this is an entire city, and that's the imagination of Revelation 21, this giant city that is being wed with God, that is coming, heaven coming to earth, and there is a river in this city. And the, the river has waters that seep into a tree of life which bears healing fruit for all the world's nations and there is now no more curse. And there is now some, no somewhere else. The dwelling place of God is with us again. And so God has, in the end, restored all that God desired to have happen in the beginning. And so heaven, it turns out, is not some otherworldly place. Heaven is the place where God's will is fully done. Heaven is the realm where God's purpose, God's intention, God's telos is brought into completion. And now we see bits of that in part, but one day we will see that in whole. We'll see all of it. All that God desired for his world, we'll see. And so this is our clue for how we live today. Because we want to be people, we pray it every week, people who agree with God that more of heaven needs to come to earth. More of 
heaven as the place God's will is done needs to come to this place where God's will is not yet fully done. We want to get in on that. God's given us a role to play as kings and priests to say, we see what's happening in, the, in God's intention for the world, and we want to help bring that to bear on this world now. And so our task, our role, is to transform today in light of God's future. We get a glimpse of what God has in store. We start storing it up today. And so if our hope is that at the end of the story, we'll be in heaven, let's get heaven here now, right? If the goal and the hope is that in the end of the story, there will be no more pain, all things will be right again, we will live with God forever, then let's start doing God's will now because heaven is the place God's will is done. We get to anticipate that. We get to live in that reality right now. We get to spread heavenly culture now. We get to offer a foretaste of all that is to come. We'll end with this. Jesus says it's possible to store something up as a treasure that lasts until heaven, right? So in some mysterious way, it is possible for the love that we live with today to last on into God's future. It matters how we live. It matters eternally how we live. Because what we do, the way we love, the way we care, the way we serve, it all lasts on into an eternity. It's one of my favorite quotes from N.T. Wright. He says, every act of love, gratitude and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support, and of course every prayer and all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads this good news, that builds up the church and embraces holiness over corruption, and everything that makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. So friends, the way you live today is not in vain and is not temporary. It goes on to an eternity. So grace and peace to you from the one who is still to come. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, would you show us places in our lives where we've lost hope. Places where we've lost trust that your story is as good as it can be. Would you help us to get a glimpse of what restoration and reconciliation might be? And though we see it in part, would you help us to anticipate heaven now by bringing heaven to bear on this world and in doing so agree with you in your intention for all things? Help us to be your people, your kings and your priests in this world. Pray this in Jesus' name.